to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. Do you struggle to change your habits? Do you set a goal but abandon it before you reach it? Do you have a hard time resisting temptation? If so, this episode is for you. My guest today is Katie Milkman. Katie is a researcher on behavior change and a professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. She's also the host of Charles Schwab's popular behavioral economics podcast called Choiceology. Her best-selling book, How to Change, The Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be, recently grabbed my attention. And as soon as I read it, I knew I wanted to get her on the show. Some of the things she talks about are how to stick to healthy habits, how to get rid of unhealthy habits, and how to create lasting change in your life. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist's take. It's the part of the show where I break down my guest strategies and share how you can start applying them to your life today. So here's Katie Milkman on how to create the lasting change you need to become the strongest and best version of yourself. Katie Milkman, welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. I'm a therapist and my work is all about helping people create the changes that they want in their life. However, lots of people struggle with this. And despite our best intentions, they just say things aren't working for me. One of the reasons why I was drawn to your book, which happens to be called How to Change, is because you don't give a a roadmap of, okay, do this, this, and this. Instead, you talk about the obstacles that are in our way, how even despite the best of intentions, we struggle to create change because we have these certain obstacles. How did you come to that conclusion that we didn't need a a to-do list of what to do, but instead it's better to say, how do you overcome these obstacles? Yeah, well, I've been studying behavior change for almost 20 years now. I'm a behavioral scientist, a PhD in um, actually engineering and business, but uh, I study How do we create change? And one of the most critical things that I have found is that people too often, whether they're trying to create change in their own lives or they're leading an organization or a team or um, so trying to promote change for others, they look for sort of something that sounds great or a roadmap that seems like it'll work well, you know, set big audacious goals or visualize success. And even a lot of the things they reach for are backed by evidence as effective. But what I've seen is that they don't get as far as they could if instead of reaching for what just sounds great or or looks like it maybe has some evidence behind it, they actually took the time to figure out what is the specific obstacle standing in their way, um, be it uh, that they find it to be a chore to pursue the goal that's critical to them or that habits are preventing them from success, that they're forgetful or they lack confidence, and then actually tailoring their solutions to that specific roadblock. So science offers a lot of techniques that can help us change, but they work best when they actually are specifically suited to whatever stands in your way. So I've seen that time and again and realized that should be sort of the central message of this book that I decided it was time to write to share the research I'd done and the research of my collaborators with a broader audience who might be able to benefit. 
And that's one of the things I really appreciated about your book is you weren't just talking about this as a professor or something that you read in textbooks. You have done the actual research and you give the fascinating examples of studies throughout the book. Can you tell me one of your favorite studies about change that you've done? Oh, gosh, I have so many favorites. It's like choosing between your children. I hear I only have one, but (laughs) (laughs) I think that it's the same problem. I love so many of the projects. But um, how about if I pick one that I particularly love because it was so surprising? And I'll start there. And, And this project was one focused on how do we help people build lasting habits I had a collaborator, um, John Bashirs at Harvard Business School, who was equally fascinated in this question, fascinated by this question. And we actually teamed up with Google uh, to try to create lasting habits for about 2,500 of their employees who all wanted to find a way to get to the gym more regularly. And we thought this would be a great place, a great test bed for seeing if we could kickstart habits in a way that would really produce lasting change. And we had an idea about what it might take to create habits that would last beyond a month-long period where we were going to try to create this kickstart. So what we thought, based on past research, was maybe it would be really important to create real consistency in the way that people engaged in a behavior they wanted to to make stick. And um, we thought, you know, if everybody in this program is encouraged to go to the gym at the same time of day, every time they go, we might be able to build a lasting habit around that consistent time. Um, But we weren't positive. There's also some research that suggests it can be really critical to have flexibility. So we ran a test. Our hypothesis was, was clear, but some people were encouraged to exercise at really consistent times of day for a month, and they were given rewards for doing so. And this group, we got to go 85% of the time at the same time of day. And another group was encouraged to go at the same frequency, but to have some more variability in when they visited the gym. So this group ended up making 50% of their trips to the gym at a consistent time, but the other half of their workouts were much more dispersed. So they're exploring and experimenting and becoming more flexible. And then the question was, after this month, when we've, we've started them up in different ways, who will keep going in a more regular way? Who will have a lasting habit? And what I think is so fascinating that we found is exactly the opposite of what we expected. We thought it would be the people with the more consistent routines, but we actually found it was people who had built a more flexible habit who ended up going more consistently. And when we dug into our data to try to understand why this was the case, what we found is that people who had gone always at the same time or almost always at the same time, they kept going at that time a little bit more. But if they missed that regular workout, They didn't go at all. They throw up their hands and they say, I give up. Um, The other group had built a more robust, flexible habit. So by going sometimes at, say, 7 a.m., which was their ideal time, but having a backup plan to go at noon if that didn't work out or at 5 p.m. if if noon fell apart, they ended up building this more robust habit. When, When life got in the way, they still found a way to do the thing that was important to them. So that might be my favorite discovery I've made because it was so counterintuitive, but uh, but I think so useful to recognize when we try to build a lasting habit or routine, it's critical to create a flexible way of going about doing so, as opposed to a rigid routine that will prove brittle when life throws us obstacles. That is interesting because we hear so much about consistency, routines, habits, that you have to always do something at the same time. So clearly, though, flexibility is something that we should keep in mind when we're going to do something like that. When uh, actually interesting, I'm going to ask you if you had anything to do with this. I toured Google a couple of years ago. I gave a Google talk. And as they were giving me this tour, they just happened to say, hey, we got our employees to get a lot healthier. 
with one simple trick, we they have a fully stocked kitchen is one of the many perks at Google. And they left a lot of snacks on the counter and they started putting the junk food behind frosted glass and the healthy food either in the refrigerator, you could get water and it was behind clear glass. Same with the snacks on the counter. If they put, uh, if they had glass canisters, if they were frosted, people reach for them less than if, and then they would put fruit out in the open. And they had the math behind it, how many calories their company was saving and how much healthy their employees were. Did you have anything to do with that? I didn't have to do with it, but I, um, but my collaborator actually on the research I just described, Jesse Wisdom, who's a PhD in um, behavioral science from Carnegie Mellon University, was the person I believe behind those changes. Um, and and they are grounded in great behavioral science, and they're related to a lesson that I share in the book about um, how quickly we we go to the path of least resistance, and how important it is to set defaults that will actually support our goals. And so when we create just the tiniest bits of friction, like you know putting things out of reach or behind uh, an opaque um, or in an opaque jar, we make temptations less visible and make it easier to choose healthy options. And so Google absolutely implemented that both in their snack kitchens and in their cafeterias where they also have great choice architecture, which is the terminology we often use in the field to talk about those kinds of design decisions that support good choices. It's something I've used with my therapy clients too. When people say, I want to reach for healthier food. Well, let's put the Oreos in the really high cabinet and then put the food that you want it that's healthier that you're hoping to reach for and really accessible. And sometimes that little change makes a huge difference. Small frictions matter a lot, it turns out, to what we do. And this is, so defaults, this is sort of a key lesson um, from the behavioral science revolution studies of nudging and choice architecture. When we when we make um, the easiest option, the best option, we get these huge benefits. And do you have any real life examples of that, of other ways that we can create more friction for our bad habits so that we don't reach for them? Yeah, it's a really great question. Um, well, the Some of the most important studies that have been done on this have looked at it in organizational settings, actually. So one of my favorite studies was done by Bridget Madrian and Dennis Shia about almost 20 years ago now, showing that if you are onboarding new employees and want to help them um, save for retirement, it's really critical actually to make it so that saving is the default, meaning you don't have to do anything. It just happens automatically, uh, as opposed to something that's trivially easy to opt into by like checking a box on a form and saying, I'd like to start saving uh, and having a portion of paychecks sent sent to, um, to my 401k account. There was this 40% Per, excuse me, 40 percentage point change in savings rates when this one firm they were working with made what seemed like a trivial change to default people into a savings program rather than not. Uh, there's similar data on making organ donation a default as opposed to something you have to opt into doing. Um, and there's also a really interesting study showing that when doctors are defaulted into prescribing generic drugs, meaning like, you know, say I want to put you on Lipitor, which is a popular statin to make you healthier, uh, instead of sending to your pharmacy a name brand, if there's a generic available, that automatically goes. Had this huge effect on um, reducing the amount people are having to pay for their medications because it's more expensive. So anytime we have a system where we can create defaults, it's really helpful. And, And in our own lives, we can do this with, you know, changing the default browser uh, homepage from social media to a news website that might be more enriching, for for instance, or um, making it so that the foods that you keep at home are healthier foods. Um, having You can think of routines and habits as another form of default. So trying to set those up if you have a family um, to be d- that you sort of 
autopilot, your default is sitting down to a, a meal together, going for a walk as a family together, rather than everybody sort of engrossing themselves in their devices. So there are all these different ways that we can create positive defaults. That's a great idea. Set yourself up for success and be much more likely to reach your goals. Something else I really liked in your book is you talk about laziness. It's not a topic that a lot of people cover. I don't think any of us want to think of ourselves as lazy necessarily. We have to talk about procrastination and we like to think that we're really busy. But can you talk a little bit about laziness and how that plays in? Yeah. So this actually is a perfect segue from what we were just discussing because the key reason so many of these strategies, setting wise defaults, trying to put things on autopilot works is that we... Um, humans are wired to be lazy. And that is normally considered a bug, right? You normally think laziness is an insult. And I even remember hesitating to to call a chapter laziness. It felt so negative. But I actually think we should embrace it. And, you know, if you think about the most efficient algorithms, and again, now I'm like leaning on my background as a computer scientist, they're incredibly lazy, right? Google, how did Google become the great search engine? Because it has this very sort of efficient algorithm. It takes the path of least resistance. It looks for a fast solution. And that's what we do too when we prefer to, to choose the easiest way to achieve any objective. Once we know this about ourselves though, we can actually create systems that lean into it and make the path of least resistance and make the lazy path the one that will lead to the best outcome. So defaults are a really key way to do that. And then really deliberately fostering habits so that your autopilot is going to lead in a positive direction is another way we can harness laziness. And we've talked a little bit about how to do that. I talked about the importance of actually when you build up a habit, um, you want to create some degree of flexibility, but some degree of consistency other things you can do to think about habits and creating habits that I I think are underappreciated include treating it more like the way you would treat building a skill in that you want to like deliberately practice it, have repetition, have some degree of consistency in the performance environment, though some variability. So you have a fallback plan, not only a first best, and then rewarding yourself for success. Those things tend to foster habit and autopilot. And, and um, for simple tasks, it can take as little as a few weeks to build something that feels like a habit and where laziness is working for you. For more complex behaviors, say, Jim going um, research I've done with Colin Kammerer, an economist at Caltech, suggests it can take more like months. So we have to be also understanding of, of the fact that it takes some time, but that deliberate practice can really pay off. So one of the things I struggle with is people come into my therapy office, they've heard the rumor that it's 28 days to build a habit or 30 days. We know that that's not true, right? Not true. No. In fact, it depends on the, it depends on the behavior, it depends on the activity and how complex it is. Um, 21 days is actually the one I've heard most often. And I learned from uh, my friend, Wendy Wood, who's a professor at University of Southern California and probably the world's expert the greatest expert on habits, she told me she traced that myth to a study done of plastic surgery patients that they were surveyed in the 1970s in a small study, and it took about 21 days on average to get used to your new face after plastic surgery. And somehow this myth then grew out of that, that it's 21 days to form a habit, but there's really no actual evidence to support that. And it in fact, the evidence suggests it depends very much on how complex the, the behavior is. It varies a lot from person to person, but in some research we've done, we've found things like simple habits, like hand sanitizing in a hospital. If you're a caregiver, 
takes order of magnitude on average weeks to form that kind of habit, whereas it takes more like months to form a more complex habit around something like gym going. So it really depends on on what the behavior is and how complex it is. I'm glad you said that because so many people think struggle and they're like, I've done this for 21 days and yet day 22 isn't necessarily any easier. How come? And something else that you mentioned is rewarding yourself and something else I work with on my therapy clients. However, sometimes they reward themselves in a way that sabotages themselves. Somebody who says, I'm going to change my diet says, okay, if I stick with my diet Monday through Friday, Saturday, I'm going to eat anything I want. And it ends up becoming more of a hindrance than a help. So how do you reward yourself in a way that it actually works to keep you motivated? It's a great question. I think the key to thinking about rewards is to make sure you're finding a way um, that it feels fun and light to do the thing that's good for you. And so that that's what you associate with this behavior um, that you're trying to motivate. Um, So there's wonderful research by Ayelet Fishbach of the University of Chicago and Caitlin Woolley of Cornell University showing that often when we're trying to pursue a new goal, what we focus on is finding the most effective way to get there. makes a lot of sense. But a small subset of people actually look for the most fun way to pursue their goals. And it turns out if we actually give people the advice to look for a more fun way to pursue a goal as opposed to the most effective way, you get more persistence. Because if we enjoy the activity itself, we'll keep doing it. We'll come back to it. We care so much about that instant gratification, that instant experience. But if we find it miserable, we won't come back. So I think one key way we can reward ourselves is finding a way to make the activity that matters that we're trying to repeat instantly gratifying. And that can be by linking it with some reward, you know, um, For me, like exercise, I actually link with temptation. So I I listen to audio novels that I love, uh, lowbrow audio novels. Others do it with watching lowbrow TV. And now actually I find myself craving those workouts to find out what happens next in my latest thriller. Um, That's a way to make it fun without really doing something that's detrimental, right? I'm not eating an ice cream sundae right after my workout and completely canceling out the benefit if my goal was was fitness and, and good health. Um, so I think I think looking for the ways that you can find rewards that make the activity itself enjoyable and it don't cancel its benefits is really critical to success. I think so too. And it's something I learned in my own life, despite the fact that as a therapist, I tell a lot of people the importance of having fun. There was a time in my life where I took running way too seriously. And I'm not a competitive runner. I just like to run a timed mile and see if I can beat my time from yesterday. But for a while, I thought I had to be super serious. Like, I can't listen to music because that would distract me and I have to uh, turn everything off. I can't, I have to pay attention, completely focus. The first time I ever, say, beat my record, I was listening to music. My neighbor went by on her bike and I waved and said hello. And then suddenly I, I beat my record without even realizing it. And it didn't feel like I was exerting more energy, even though... I ran faster than I had before. And a light bulb went off of, duh, it's okay to have fun while you're trying to reach a goal. And it makes it so much easier. Yeah, no, I love that. It's such a great illustration of this sort of key finding from the last decade of research on goal setting and goal pursuit about the importance of the, the instant experience to give you that motivation to persist. And something else you talk about in your book that is really important is the idea of confidence. And I've seen it become a hindrance in both ways. Sometimes people come in and they say, oh, my doctor recommended I, I lose 50 pounds. That's easy. And they're so overconfident that they don't end up beating their goal. But then I have other people who say, uh, my doctor recommended I make these changes in my life, but that's impossible. There's no way I can do it. And they might even go through some of the motions, but they're so convinced that it's not going to work that they set themselves up to fail from day one. How do you develop the right amount of confidence that you can increase your chances of success. 
That's such an insightful question. I love the way you posed it. And the first thing I want to do actually is plug a friend's book, which I think addresses this beautifully. My friend um, Don Moore, who's a professor at the Haas School of Business at uh, UC Berkeley, has a great book called Perfectly Confident. And it's really all about this calibration. And, and he is the world's expert on confidence, overconfidence, underconfidence, how to get it right. And you're exactly right that there's this fine line. If you're overconfident, you think I've got this in the bag, then you won't use the kinds of strategies and tools and do the deep thinking that really is required because um, figuring out how to change, it's for most people, it's a challenge. Most goals fail. And if you aren't strategizing and making plans and setting goals and figuring out what could stand in your way and using the best science-based strategies, you're not giving yourself the best chance at success and you're you're unlikely to get all the way to the end. So that's the challenge of overconfidence is we, we under-strategize and then we fall on our face and we can't figure out why. But the challenge of underconfidence is a real one, too. So if you don't believe you've got what it takes, you're not going to be able to stay motivated, stay the course, or even try. So we need to calibrate. And and I think that's part of why this tailoring notion is so important, figuring out what are the obstacles. Are you up against overconfidence and you need to be brought down to earth a little bit and figure out, no, this is hard. Here's the data on how hard it is. Let me think about what are the barriers most likely to obstruct my journey and then and tailor solutions. Or are you underconfident? And if you're underconfident, there's a lot of great research suggesting tools and tactics that can be helpful. Um, one thing I think matters immensely, and that is the social support and social structure that you can build to to build your own confidence. When you surround yourself with other people who are showing you what is possible, other people who are like you, who resemble you, you can identify with and are achieving at a slightly higher level and show you, look, people like you really can do this. And they're coaching you and cheering you on. And it can be incredibly uh, positive. And that can be a really useful tool. Mindset also matters a lot. So Carol Dweck at Stanford has shown how important mindset is. Um, having a growth mindset where you interpret failures not as diagnostic of your ability, but rather as an opportunity to learn and grow. People are much more able to achieve goals when they have that mindset as opposed to a fixed mindset saying, you know, any failure is diagnostic of me and I'm sort of at the end of my at my limit. Um, so those are a couple of key insights, but but there's more if you want to dig in further. Uh, I think this is such an important topic and there's, there's more in the book and there's more in what Don has done as well. Yeah, I love that you talk so much about it because I think that's something else that's overlooked. Uh, doctors will give people advice of, again, lose 50 pounds and, and then never ask them, how do you feel about that? Do you think this is a good idea? Do you think you can do this? And people walk out the door, I think, sometimes feeling completely overwhelmed or completely dejected, or they walk out the door thinking, okay, I've got this, not a problem, but they don't really have a plan of how to do it. They don't really think about how hard it's going to be. Um, So thank you for bringing that up, because I think that's just something we overlook so often. And I guess a couple of other things. So if I want to develop a good habit, let's say I decide I want to start meditating, but I'm not somebody who normally meditates, but this is something I've heard is important. I want to start doing it. Where would you suggest I begin to start making that a habit in my life? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, There's a couple of good places to start on average, I would say. Um, One thing, in some cases, 
you will know enough and it'll be a straightforward enough goal that you've set that you can sit down and start um, breaking down that goal into sort of daily components. The the more bite-sized, the better, and making plans about when exactly will you do it, where exactly will you do it. There's research by Peter Golwitzer of NYU on the importance of making those very concrete plans where you say, you know, if these circumstances arrive, then I will follow through in the following way, as opposed to just vaguely saying, oh, I want to meditate more, saying, you know, I'm going to meditate on Tuesday at 4 p.m. after my weekly phone call with, you know, this client in my office uh, for 30 minutes. That's much more effective than I plan to meditate once a week. So the more specific we can get with making those kinds of plans, the better. But sometimes you actually don't know enough about what it is you want to achieve to be able to get into the planning phase without gathering more information. And one overlooked path, I think, to gathering that information is something that uh, my collaborator Angela Duckworth and I have called um, copy and paste. So often people don't look at the those who surround them deliberately and look for what's working for them when they have a similar goal. And, and we've found that if you prompt people to go Look for someone else who resembles you, who has the same goal and has been making some progress on it and try to actually interrogate them a little bit, you know, in a positive way <laughs> about what what are the tactics, what are the very specific tactics that they have used to, to make progress on their goal so that you can actually try to emulate, literally copy and paste what they're doing. Too few people use this strategy. And when we simply prompt people to do it, they end up getting further than if we simply prompt them to make a plan because sometimes we need more information to to get to our goals in the best possible way. And and a great source of information is like-minded others in your social network who have similar constraints, similar lifestyles, and have actually figured out already how to make progress. So why not try to learn from them? That's even better than, you know, learning from the internet or books. You're often going to see that they have faced similar obstacles to the ones you've faced, and so their solutions will be more useful. I really like that idea. And so let's say, let's use the meditation example. Maybe I don't even know who meditates, so I wouldn't even know who to reach out to. Can I just post it on social media and say, is there anybody out there who meditates? How did you do it? Do you have other ideas of how I would find like-minded people? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. Sort of like, how, how do you gather that information? Social media is a wonderful resource for that kind of thing because you can reach so many people so quickly. But often just, you know, pinging friends directly, you'll find others uh, quickly and surprisingly who have similar life goals. You know, I also I want to say I'm a scientist and I really strongly believe in using science-based tools. It's the whole reason I wrote this book. So I don't want to say you shouldn't, you can also go and look to experts for this kind of um, wisdom. And there's a lot of great, resources on, you know, online and books that can offer science-based tools for success. And those are worth looking for too. But, uh, but I think another overlooked strategy is just simply reaching out to people in your social community um, who, who have similar goals and learning what's worked for them. There is something powerful about having, whether it's your cousin, your friend, uh, who are doing these things and they're demonstrating in real life how they do it. And then to know when I run into a problem, if I have somebody to run this past, somehow that just feels so much better. And if you cheer, cheer each other on, you check in with each other, uh, it makes it all the much more effective. Absolutely. And the social component is part of why we think this sort of copy-paste strategy is even more useful than just being hand-delivered ideas that might be of equal quality. Being able to have a role model and a go-to where, you know, something's not working and you can try to tweak the strategy by saying to your cousin, hey, wait, what do you do when you hit this roadblock? You get that feedback loop that can be really useful. And sometimes as professionals, we get it wrong. We say, oh, here's a nutritionist. They're going to give you a diet plan and you're supposed to start to follow it. 
people aren't invested in it. They they don't opt in. They didn't create their own plan. Somebody gave you a plan. You're not that likely to follow it. And yet, most people, we don't want to say no when your dentist says to you, you should floss your teeth more often. You're not going to say, actually, no, I'm not going to do that. You're just going to nod your head, smile, and get out of the office. But if, if it wasn't your idea, you're not invested in it, and you didn't come up with your own plan of how to do it, you're probably not going to. Yeah, it's a great point. There's actually some new research by a couple of my colleagues at um, Penn Medicine, um, Kevin Volpe and Mitesh Patel, that's come out in the last few weeks on uh, a randomized controlled trial where people were either they're given a goal around exercise by someone else or self-set those goals. And they can calibrate and show that um, the self-set goals are more effective. And there's lots of other research in the goal-setting literature that that reinforces this from decades earlier. So that buy-in is so critical and the self-set nature of goals can be really important. So that's how to start a new habit to establish a, a better habit in your life. But last question for you is about how do I get rid of a bad habit? Let's say I'm a smoker. I don't want to smoke anymore. How do I get rid of that habit in my life? Yeah, it's a great question. There there are a lot of different ways we can go about it, but one of the most powerful tools I have seen is, um, and one that I think is underused, is something called a commitment device. A commitment device is uh, a tool that we use to create constraints or penalties for ourselves when we don't follow through on a behavior change plan that we would like to enact. And we're really used to other people imposing these kinds of constraints and and fines on us for bad behavior, but it's a little unnatural to think about doing it for yourself. So for instance, you're used to the government setting speed limits and you know that you can get fined if you go over that speed, if you're tempted and, and keep up a bad habit, you know, bad things will happen. But we can actually create those kinds of penalties for ourselves and put a price on our vice. And that can be a really compelling way to prevent ourselves from continuing with bad habits. So I'll give you an example of one study that I love of this. This is a study that was done of smokers who really wanted to quit. And some of those smokers were given a savings account that they could put money into for six months. And they were told, if you put money in, you don't have to, but if you put money in, it'll be forfeited if you fail a urine test for nicotine or cotinine in six months' time. And uh, some smokers actually used that. Not all, but some did. And in the randomized controlled trial that tested just giving people access to this account, which again, not everyone used, but access was what was offered, uh, versus another group that wasn't given this tool, there was a 30% higher quit rate uh, among those who had the ability to put money in an account. Not everyone even did it, but just having access to this tool increased smoking cessation by 30% over giving standard tools. So if we have ways that we can constrain ourselves or impose penalties, it's really useful. And there are websites that let you do this sort of thing where you can put money on the line that you'll forfeit if you fail to achieve a goal and declare a referee or you know a digital device to actually monitor your progress. Um, stick.com and Beeminder, too, that that I know well, that they'll let you put, you know, money towards a charity. It'll come out of your pocket if you fail to achieve that goal. And you can choose a charity you hate to make it really painful. <laughs> so they have, you know, charities on either side of hot button topics. So you can you could declare it's going to go to a cause you detest, and that's going to make it sting. And that's a good way to, to, you know, basically set up reward structures so that you won't stick with these habits that are so bad. I like that. And I like the uh, idea of saying I'm going to put money in a charity I don't like because then it does sting. I worked with a family once who set up a swear jar so that if anybody in this family swore, they had to put money in it. But it didn't work because they decided that they'd use the money to go to Disney World. 
And so once there was enough money, so the kids were just swearing constantly and putting money in there so that they could help the family right. save there up. There can't so, be a silver lining. Right. So I like the idea then of the money going to something that, that you don't like. So it doesn't seem like, well, that wasn't so bad anyway. Exactly. Yeah. But a swear jar is a great example of a kind of commitment device that a lot of us are familiar with or a piggy bank, right? It's a little harder to dip into savings when it's stored in a in a, in a piggy bank, or of course, even better if it's in an inaccessible savings account um, and you forget the password and log in. <laughs> right, right. Well, Katie Milkman, thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom with us. I hope everybody goes out and buys a copy of How to Change because it's filled with so many more pieces of actionable advice and so much more about how to actually change our behavior for, for good. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Amy. This was a really fun conversation. Welcome to The Therapist Take. This is a part of the show where I break down my guest strategies and share how you can apply them to your own life. Here are three of Katie's strategies that I highly recommend. Number one, be flexible when you create a new habit. When you hear about how to establish habits that stick, the typical advice is to create a routine. So I love that Katie's research found that flexible timing works better than rigid routines. When we're rigid about a habit, like thinking we can only work out in the morning, we often get caught up into all or nothing thinking. We think the day is completely blown if we don't work out in the morning and are less likely to make it happen at lunch or after work. So I like the idea about being flexible in terms of timing. Of course, that can also make it easier to put things off until later. So make sure your good habits are a priority. Set a time when you plan to do it. And if it doesn't happen, be willing to work it into your schedule later in the day. Number two, set yourself up for success. Katie talked about the importance of making your good habits more easily accessible and making the unhealthy temptations tougher to access. I love this idea. Sometimes people assume that mental strength is about being able to resist temptations all day long or having the ability to motivate yourself no matter what. But mental strength often involves figuring out how to work smarter, not just harder so that you can save your energy for the tasks that matter most. If you want to go to the gym in the mornings, get your gym clothes ready the night before. If you want to resist unhealthy snacks all day, don't keep candy bars on your desk. Set yourself up for success by modifying your environment. It will make sticking to your habits much easier. And number three, create rewards and consequences for yourself. Katie's research found that we're much more likely to reach our goals when we reward our healthy choices and give ourselves consequences when we make a mistake. Rewards are powerful incentives that can help you keep going. You don't need to wait until you reach a huge goal, though, to reward yourself. You might find you're better off to reward yourself when you hit small milestones along the way. Buy something nice for yourself or go do something fun or treat yourself when you've earned it. I also like Katie's idea of giving yourself a consequence, too. Self-imposed consequences can be helpful deterrents sometimes. Katie suggested you might even charge yourself for giving in to temptation and then donate the money to a charity that you don't like. It sounds painful, but it might be quite effective. So give it a try as an experiment and see what happens. And remember, whether you want to stop wasting time on social media or you want to start investing more money, check out Katie's book, How to Change. It's filled with tons of strategies that can help your new habits stick. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. 
To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcast.